0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to your podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Stanford University. And today I have the great pleasure to be with Yuhua Wang. He's professor of government at Harvard University. And he's the author of The Rise and Fall of Imperial China, The Social Origin of State Development. Uh, This is a super interesting book. We're going to be talking about that and about Yuhua, Yuhua's career. Let me say hi to him first. Hi, Yuhua. How are you? Hi, Javier. Good to see you again. I'm very glad to have you here. We were chatting just um, a bit before about how your research agenda and mine are very similar in many ways. We both share this interest for social networks and for leads. I'm going to ask you a bit more about that later. But before that, um, why don't you tell us a bit about your background? Tell us a bit about your life, your career. Where are you from? Where did you study? How did you end up being interested in Chinese politics, Chinese history? Tell us a bit about that, please.
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, I was born and raised in China, uh, in Beijing. And I did my undergrad and also master's uh, at Peking University, where I majored in political science. And then I decided to uh, go abroad to study in the US. I got into the PhD program at the University of Michigan. I studied there for five years. And then um, my first job was at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I worked there for four years, and then I moved to Harvard. Um, I've been at Harvard since then. Uh, well, I guess the, you know, one moment I always remember, which might play the role in provoking my interest in politics was uh, 1989 uh, in Tiananmen Square. I was in Beijing at the time. And um, uh, I remember I was in school one day, I think in late May, and then the teachers came in suddenly to say, you know, school is canceled today, you know, you all go home. So. I was eight years old and then I didn't know what's, what's going on, right? This is, you know, I know that uh, this is half day, you know, like 11 a.m., something like that. And then I was very happy. I saw, you know, there's no school I could go home to play. And I was just walking home uh, from school. It's, uh, it's a 10-minute walk. And then uh, along the way, um, I saw tanks on the street. Uh, and then the tanks, you know, every tank, there's a soldier. And then uh, the soldier would Hold the gun, and then point the gun at the pedestrians on the street, and then they just saw those tanks roving by, and then very close, you know, very close to me, like ten meters, um, and then every in every tank there's a soldier holding the gun, and then I just saw this one. I just remember this image very vividly because it's you know it's had a very deep mark in my memory. This one soldier holding the gun, uh, and then holding the gun toward at me. And then, I, you know, I was very scared at the time because, I, you know, I don't know what would happen if he, you know, pulled the trigger. And I always think about this moment. And then what if he pulled the trigger, right? And then he could pull the trigger because at the time they got the order from the um, Communist Party that they could pull the trigger if they wanted to. And then, you know, but this question was always in my mind you know, for many years. And then um, that's probably the, the, the most important reason I got into politics. I just try to understand... Um, what happened on that day and then um how to understand um given what happened in beijing you know how to understand how politics can affect people's lives you know you know i was a child at the time and then you know this has um you know this deep mark in my memory uh and then um i just try to know more about how politics works that's
1: i mean that's a fascinating story actually i've uh I mean, there's so many things that have been said about that episode, but uh, it's probably the first time that I like hear about like a a personal experience in that regard. Um, and how was I'm curious about how was the transition from the Chinese education system to the American one, right? Like, I mean, I'm not very familiar with how education works in China, but um imagine that the type of politics that you study in, in college is probably different from the one that you would study in the U S and well, not just that. I'm sure that the, uh, the codes and the practices are different. How did you navigate that?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting story. I, um, I got into Peking university, former undergrad. And then the way it works in China is when you are in high school, you need to say what majors you want to concentrate in while in college. And then, you know, we were all teenagers. We had no idea what we want to study, right? And then and then we had to decide very early on, like in, in high school. And then my uh, first choice was history. And then because I was really into history books in, in high school, so I wanted to study history in college. But I didn't get in. I My uh, national entrance exam score was not high enough to get into history. Uh, uh, luckily, uh, political science uh, is not a very popular major in China, so I was very lucky to get into political science. Uh, but the result was I hated political science in my first three years, uh, You know, partly because I was not into political science, but also because the way uh, the professors taught political science uh, in China. I think um, there's a mix. You know, I would say that a lot of the courses are are ideological, right? We, we I was going to ask this. you that. Is it like Marxism or like what? Yeah, what, that's one what, of the required courses. You know, we okay. we spend the whole. I think the freshman year, uh, taking this course called Marxism, and then you, you know basically uh, learning about what Marx said. What. Ingalls said, you know, what are some of the followers said? And then it's not very empirical. It's not like, um, you know, let's test this hypothesis, right? You know, using the French Revolution. So it's more like, you know, in the original text, you know, Marx said this, and then Ingo said this, and then and Lenin said this, right? And then uh, it's it was boring at the time, you know, for a 18-year-old. And then um, uh, that was a, a, a majority of the courses I took. Uh, you know, we also courses on, you know, on Leninism, on Maoism, on Deng Xiaoping South, you know, all those ideological courses. But then there was also, you know, um, what provoked my interest, I guess, was gradually we also started to take some courses that are more empirical, I would say. Um, starting uh, in my third year, I remember I took a course with Professor Shen Mingming, who uh, taught the course on compared politics. And then the way he taught political science was very different. And then I think he was the the person who um, um, led me into political science because he is a survey researcher. So he also runs a survey center at Peking University. So he involved the students in his class into his survey projects. And I was able to join the project and then, you know, go to different places in China. I was, I was born in Beijing and also spent most of my time in the city. I didn't get to see the whole country. But by by being involved in his survey projects, I was able to travel to different places to rural China, for example, remote villages, um, uh, that's in 2002, 2003. And then I went to um, small villages in Henan, in, in Jiangsu, and then I was able to just knock on people's doors and then talk to people, right? And I see what uh, their real lives look like, right? And then, um, and then the survey was about their experiences with the legal institutions in China. So they were able to tell me a lot of stories about, you know, they had a dispute with their neighbors, and then they were not able to solve it in the village. And then they go to the government, you know, there's a lot of corruption in the government, they cannot solve it, then they have to go to the court. Then, then you know, in, in many cases, they still couldn't solve their problems, right? So this is all kind of frustrations. And then just by talking to those villagers really opened my eye, I think, and then made me think deeply about uh, how politics can really affect people's lives you know that's going back to the question i asked myself you know when i was eight years old you know um, seeing those tanks and then that really was the reason i think why i was determined to study politics and i mean now i'm thinking like when you
1: describe the differences between these two systems how much of um foreign knowledge uh, is taught, or is um, um, even like spill over like Chinese uh, students. So for instance, your book, how many people are going to read your book in China? Is it going to be potentially used in a regular uh, syllabus of uh, political science in a Chinese university? What's the relationship of uh, Chinese academia with foreign studies on China?
0: Yeah, I I still don't know whether my book will be included on the syllabus. My, my first book I know was not allowed to be uh, purchased uh, by the libraries and also not allowed to teach in classes. My first book on uh, tying the autocrat's hands, which is on China's legal reforms, and then um, it's probably because of the title. I have the word autocrat, and that's why it's banned in China. So I know that that book is a no. Uh, and then for the second book, you know, I'm hopeful because this is about history, and then uh, compared with contemporary politics, history which happened, you know, before 1911, you know, in imperial China is supposed to be less sensitive. But I guess uh, people can always draw some parallel, right, between history and the present, and then say, you know, how. Uh, in, this book on emperors, for example, can tell us something about today's China. And so I worry that if they uh, see the parallel, and then they might not allow the book to be taught.
1: Right, right. I understand. So it seems that, yeah, like the censorship is related to current matters,
0: right? Yes, yes. Um, right. One thing, for example, you know, we can talk more about this later. Uh, one thing I talk about in the book is how long the emperors could stay in power and then how they died, right? And then I show that uh, a lot of emperors actually died of assassinations from the elites. And then uh, only half of the emperors in Chinese history in the last 2,000 years, only half of the emperors were able to die naturally, you know, because of age or house reasons. So that's a pretty important wake-up call, I guess, for... The Chinese leaders today, right? You know, even they you know, for example, all their predecessors, you know, half of them were assassinated by the elites. That's quite important.
1: Uh, right, right. Probably you don't want like people to be thinking about that idea of you perishing in a non-natural way. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, we're gonna talk about that. And let's probably yeah, let's start talking about that. And probably the first um question I have for you is to elucidate what seems your um, core argument, which at the same time seems to be imp- inspiring what you describe as a regularity, right? Which is that there seems to be this tension in Chinese history between state strength or state capacity and the duration of uh, rulers in power, right? Can you say a bit about that and how you articulate that in the book?
0: Sure. So the puzzle... That I was trying to address in this book was that I, I uh, using a lot of data on Chinese emperors, but also on how much taxation they could collect in different dynasties. I discovered that there's a distinction between ruler duration and state capacity. That is, over the last two thousand years, um, in dynasties where you see the rulers who are able to stay in power for a very long time, for example, you know in the latter half of the imperial China, you know, from the 11th century to the 19th century, Chinese emperors were increasingly secure. You know, they were able to stay in power for a very, very long time. Uh, in the Qing dynasty, for example, in the 18th century, 19th century, many of the emperors were able to stay in power for you know 30, 40, or even 60 years. So that, that that's a very long time. But at the same time, it is also in those times um, we also see a declining state capacity of the imperial China, that is, in terms of how much taxation they can collect from the society, whether they can mobilize the population for war, you know, those um, measures of state state capacity we often see a very low level during the times when the rulers were able to stay in power for very, very long. So therefore, you see this, um, it's like a seesaw, right? It's like, you know, the ruler is sitting on one end, but also the state is sitting on the other end. And then they go up and down. But then you never see a scenario where you can have a long ruling ruler. But at the same time, they're very strong state. You you know, when you have a strong state, you always have a short-lived ruler. When you have a long-lived ruler, you always have a weak state. So the two things don't go together. And then that's the puzzle I try to solve in this book. And then uh, the conclusion I arrived was that I argue that uh, the Chinese rulers faced a trade off that I call the sovereign's dilemma. That is, um, if you want to have a strong state, you need to have a very coherent elite where, so for example, your politicians can trust each other, they can take collective actions to make policies to strengthen the state, for example, to make fiscal policies or military reforms to strengthen the government, right? But then the problem is when you have a coherent elite, they can also take action against the ruler. Therefore, when you have a coherent elite, you have a very strong state, but then very short sure to leave the rulers because the rulers will be threatened by the coherent elite, right? And then uh, the other, uh, the solution for the ruler to this problem is they can weaken the elites, right? You know, for example, they can um, break their networks, they can use some strategies to weaken the elites and then to lengthen their duration in power. They can stay in power for a very, very long time. But the result of this is the elite will become very incoherent and also fragmented so that they cannot take active action to strengthen the state, right? So, so um, the the whole book can come down to this um, dilemma and then how the Chinese emperors solve this dilemma in, in different dynasties. And then the... Uh, the basic story is the first half of the imperial China, you know, from um, that started in the Tang dynasty, which started in the 7th century. So I, I say, you know, from the 7th century to about 10th century, uh, that's a scenario where you have a very coherent elite. Uh, and then as a result, state capacity was very strong because the, the elites were able to take collective action to reform the fiscal system the military system to make China stronger. But at the same time, the rulers in that time were also more likely to be assassinated by the elites. And then in the second half of imperial China from the 11th century to the 20th century, you have a scenario where you have a very fragmented elite. And then they're not able to take live action to strengthen the country. And then the the country's state capacity uh, gradually declined. But at the same time, ruler duration lengthened. That's a result of this. So you have very
1: specific ways to think about the um, cohesiveness of this elite and their collective behavior. But before asking you about that, I want you to tell us a bit more about who these elite were. Like, what were they doing? Like, were they landowners, I imagine, right? Or what was the source of their power and... What was their type of interaction? I know this varies across periods, but between them and the monarchs, which were the emperors, basically tell us a bit about how we should think about this this elite. Who who are they?
0: Sure, they were mostly economic elites um, in the first place, right? They were all big landowners, as you hinted. Uh, they were a little bit different in these two periods. So the the first period that I look at, for example, you know, from the Tang Dynasty, um, on to the um, early Song Dynasty, uh, there was an aristocratic class in China, which you know, very very similar to the European nobility. There was you know um, a class of about two hundred families who were nobility from very early on. You know, from the third century. First century, they have the pedigree, you know, from long time ago. They have been government officials, you know, for generations, and then um, they also were geographically congregated. They all live in the capitals. Uh, there were two capital cities in the Tang Dynasty, and then most of the aristocratic families, you know, have their male members living in the capital cities because they all work in the capital. They all worked in the national government, so they want to, you know, be close to the political center of the empire, and then. Another feature of the aristocratic families was that uh, they all intermarried intensively. That is, their children all intermarried with each other, and also very um, exclusively. That is, they only marry other aristocratic families. They don't marry, you know, ordinary families or the non-noble families. And then that made them a very coherent group, you know, because of the um, the, the geographic congregation, but also the the very intense intermarriages, they were able to form a network where everybody was connected with with everybody else, right? So all the other 200 families were embedded in this very close-knit network. That's what, you know, um, uh, the elite looked like for the first half of the imperial China. And then that that class um, was physically destroyed by a mass rebellion in the late 9th century. There was this... Um, um, mass rebellion, mass rebellion. Sorry, mass rebellion led by the salt merchant Huang Chao in late 9th century. So they started somewhere else, but they they went to the capital cities, and then when they occupied the capital cities for two years, they were able to kill all the aristocratic families. So that's the end of nobility in China. And then, uh, so in the second half of the imperial China, uh, most of the politicians, the bureaucrats, were drawn from local land owning elite families. So there were uh, now those central elites, they were all based in local China. They were, you know, landowners. And then um, because of the deaths of the aristocratic families, the emperors, starting in the 11th century, they started to use the civil service examination system to choose bureaucrats. And then uh, if it means that, you know, um, starting from the 11th century on uh, the sons and the grandsons of the local landowning elites started to learn and also prepare for the civil service examination system and then take the exam and if they succeeded they can become politicians to work in the government so so later on you know for the second half of the imperial china most of the politicians in the central government were drawn from the local landowning elites
1: and I mean when you describe that this like the origin of the specific people and and the connections between them you know that because you have this extraordinary source of information that partly comes from visiting cemeteries right why don't you tell <laughs> us a bit about that right that's a fascinating story and it's interesting because part of my work something similar in a very different context. I work in Latin America mostly, but I've done that in a similar fashion, visiting cemeteries, taking notes of things around. So I also have some slides on that when I present on my papers. And that's one of the reasons why, why I love your work the first time that I saw you presenting. But why don't you tell us a bit about the data collection process, right? Like how did you end up knowing who these elite were, how they were connected, um, how that happens from an empirical point of view.
0: Yeah, that's you know an accident in terms of how I discovered the data source. And about 15 years ago, I was still a graduate student at the University of Michigan, and I was working on my dissertation, which was on contemporary China. But I took a trip in a summer uh, to the city of Xi'an, in China, and then Xi'an is a very old capital of several dynasties of Chinese history. And then I just I just you know went there for a tour, and then um, one day I was led by a local friend uh, to downtown Xi'an, and then there's a museum in downtown Xi'an, and then um, we went in, and then we I discovered that the museum is about tombstones. So they uh, in imperial China when some famous people died, right, and then their family would spend money and also ask the friends to write a, a, a very lengthy eulogy and then they will buy this tombstone and you know and then they would carve the lengthy eulogy on a piece of tombstone you know, usually a limestone and then those stones you know uh, very good quality and then they survive you know hundreds of years you know sometimes more than a thousand years and then this museum has amazing collection of the tombstones you know some of them are from more than a thousand years ago you know from the Tang dynasty but m- most of them are from the Song dynasty, for example, or the Ming dynasty, Qing dynasty, hundreds of years ago. And then, you know, I, do, I was walking in this museum and then just, you know, uh, and then saw those tombstones and I, and I stopped by one of them. I just started reading and then there are two sides of the tombstone. On the front side, it has the, you know, the position, the owner, the name of the deceased person, right? And then on the bike side, which is more interesting is this, lancy eulogy that the friend of this deceased person wrote, and then they carved it on the tombstone. And then I started reading, I, I realized that, you know, as a social scientist, you know, I'm, my eyes, you know, in, in, in sparkled because I realized that's data, right? That's what we call data. That is, you know, the, the lancy eulogy will include the hometown of the place, you know, how he grew up, um, usually a man. So, you know, how he grew up, you know, his parents, and then, you know, he took the civil service examination system, you know, in which, in which year, you know, his rank and then his positions in the government in, and then his whole achievement, right? You know, like, like the whole, whole vita is carved on the tombstone. And then what's more interesting about the tombstone is at the end of the tombstone, they would talk about his own family, for example, his wife, you know, his um, his daughters, and his sons, and then, and then his uh, sons-in-law, you know, daughters-in-law, and then also, you know, from which family he married his wife from, right, you know, his um, father-in-law, mother-in-law, so on and so forth. And then at the time, I was quite amazed by the amount of information on the tombstone, but I didn't care too much because I was working on my dissertation on legal institutions in China so I didn't saw that I would, that could like we use data but but that image was always in my head that I, I know that there's this thing you know tombstone that existed in China and then uh, starting about I think eight or seven years ago when I started working on the second book I started reading historians work and they talk about you know how the elite you know was transformed in Imperial China their social relations, became localized, their networks became more fragmented, but then all those historians' work are based on case studies. You know, they went to the, uh, one county, they look at the genealogies of some local families, They then they come to the conclusion, right? And then I realized um, uh, I want to do this more systematically, right, and to write a book of this scale, uh, I want data that can show me, you know, uh, long-term changes, right? And, and then also, uh, Um, very systematic data on a large number of politicians in different dynasties. And then that image from 15 years ago suddenly came to my mind that I realized, oh, actually, you know, uh, I visited this temple where they kept all the tombstones, right? And then maybe, you know, maybe I I was not quite sure. I was not very confident. uh, But maybe if I could collect all the tombstones that are out there, right, I would, I should be able to construct a very systematic data set of where the elites were, you know, their hometowns, their parents, so on and so forth, but also very importantly, their kinship networks, right? Uh, you know, I can know exactly their their wife's family, their uh, uh, daughter-in-law's family, son-in-law's family, right? And then and then that's how this started, that I realized that, uh, that I can use this archaeological source for political science research.
1: Let, let me ask you a couple of things regarding that process of data collection like very particular but for someone who does something similar i'm curious about them so one like how did you end up like gathering the data were you able, like i guess you had a team of people that were like taking pictures and transcribing um so tell me a bit about the process of like and picking which temples i guess that you didn't visit just that temple probably several others how do you pick where to look at and then, how did you think about, um, I guess, the representativeness of the data? Right, there's some people that made their terms in certain way. There's a reason why some are preserved and others not. How did you approach that uh, issue of the data?
0: Yeah, those are great questions. Uh, so very luckily, when I started collecting data, I realized that a lot of the tombstones have been digitized. And then, um, say, for example, you know, the Song Dynasty, which became a chapter in my book, um, most of the tombstones from the Song Dynasty, because they were, you know, the eulogies were written by very famous literary people, you know, by writers, for example, poets. And then um, uh, all those writings were preserved um, and then digitized and also Included in some volumes on Song writings, for example, you know there is this this um, volumes of um, books that call the, the 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 complete prose of Song, which includes uh, basically all the writings that we can collect from the Song dynasty. And then those writings include the eulogies they wrote for their friends. And then um, it, it, it means that you know I don't you know for a lot of the the tombstones actually for. Most of them, I don't have to go to the temple and then take pictures and then transcribe them. Actually, you know, most of them are, are digitized. At the same time, um, at Harvard, there's also a project called the CBDB, the China Biographic um, Database, uh, that Peter Bow, a historian, has been compiling for years. And then, and then in the CBDB database. Um, they also have collected a lot of the the genealogies, the local gazetteers, but also the tombstones. So I was able to um, extract a lot of data from the CBDB database as well. So this is combining, I think, combining the different sources from the original writing from the tombstone, but also from the existing database. I was able to construct this database of the these um, kinship networks. But the problem. As you have realized, is that there's there's a huge missingness right in the data. Um, the missingness is the following: that is, um, the Chinese imperial governments were very good at documenting names. That is, you know, from the official records from from each dynasty, I was able to uh, identify who were the major politicians in each dynasty, and then. Uh, they did a very good job so so every dynasty would um, document all the major officials um, from the previous dynasty so using those records I was able to get a list of all the major politicians in each dynasty and then using that list of names I was able to collect their their kins you know their their Family information, their kinship networks, so on and so forth. And then, uh, uh, for my database, I realized that uh, I can only collect half of them. So only half of the names on the official list had information on kinship networks. And then even the people who have some information on their kinship networks, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of people missing from the kinship network. For example, you know, their aunt, or you know, for example, their um, their third son, you know, and then the you know the Wife of their third son might not be as documented as the wife of their eldest son, right? And then, so there are a lot of missingness in in terms of you know who has the data on kinship network uh, on kinship network, but also within the network, there are a lot of missingness, right? The way I deal with this is, um, I want to be very transparent, right? I, I said this in the book that this is a book on history, so therefore we should know that there are a lot of um, missing data problems or inaccuracies. Of data, so I want to be very transparent, but also at the same time, there are ways uh, that social scientists have designed to deal with the missing data problem. For example, you know, multiple imputation, and then um, using the information we know, we can try to predict, uh, you know, how many kin they have, you know, how many sons they have, and then. Uh, in my book, I try different methods, and then I, I try to show that, um, um, you know, using those different methods, we can come to the same conclusion. But I think most importantly, uh, my message in the book is: um, Look, you know, we know that we cannot get, you know, one hundred percent of the data from a thousand years ago. But here are the people that are probably the most important, right? Um, because we know that the more important they are. The more likely the to tombstones there. will be preserved, you know, and then their family information will be documented, right? And then so, so I say that, you know, uh, uh, this is definitely not a random sample, but this is probably a very indicative sample, right? This is a sample that is really important in that dynasty. So we know, you know, um, the most important people from that dynasty. Probably not a representative sample, but the most important people from those dynasties.
1: Right, right. I mean, I love the way you frame it because I think that's an inevitable challenge of dealing with social networks, right? Like, in theory, we are all connected. You know, the world is fairly small, and we're not able, we're not ever going to be able to fully reconstruct an empirical network because of that. And and that's a problem. But, you know, like the option of a peer in this regard would be then to do nothing. And just like not use that great source of information and just explore tentatively. Um, so I I really love the like the pragmatic approach to you that you have to 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 that data. Um but so just to connect a bit your like the description of the data with your big claims, why don't you tell us a bit about this Ideal networks that you have in your head, this star type of network and the bow tie that sort of match your your description of a more fragmented elite in one period and more cohesive in in, in another period.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I argue that um, um, we can use a very uh, simple theory to explain the changes in Chinese politics. You know, over the last. Two thousand years, right? And then the idea is that uh, I argue there are probably two stereotypes, or you know, two ideal types of elite social structures, right? And then the first type is what I call a star network. And then in the star network, um, you have central elites, you know, the people who work in the central government. Um, they are connected with each other, right, through some social ties. And then in this book, I focus on intermarriages, right? So it means that, for example. In the star network, all the central government officials are connected indirectly or directly through intermarriages. You know, their sons and daughters were married with each other, right? And then um, that will make the central elites very coherent. But at the same time, it's how the it's how the star network also because the center was connected with the periphery through social ties. And then um, by center, I mean the central politicians, and then by periphery, I mean the local families, for example, you know, through those intermarriages ties, um, the central elites were able to marry from the local families, right? For example, their sons and daughters, and then, you know, were married. uh, So, for example, you know, the prime minister's son might marry a daughter, you know, the daughter from a family that located in the west of China, right? And then, where the, you know, the second son was married to a daughter, from a family in the north, right? And then so through those intermarriages, the central elites were able to connect with families that are located in different places in China, right? So it looks like a um, a star network, right? You have the, the center, uh, and then also this center was connected with the periphery. And then um, uh, the nice thing about this Star network is the Star Network is a great news for the state because once the elites are connected with each other, but also they're connected with the periphery, they have a strong interest in strengthening the central state because their family interests are scattered everywhere in the country. Right? You have, you know, your daughter-in-law from the north, you have, you know, your, your son-in-law from the west. Therefore, you prefer to say, you know, let's all pay taxes to the central state and then make the central state stronger. So that the central state can pr- can um can provide protection for all of us because we are we're everywhere, right? This is much much cheaper for us to just pay taxes to the central government and to seek this national coverage, right? And also because of the the connections within the center, they were also able to make a credible commitment to each other to say, you know, I will um make my effort to strengthen the central government. You need to do your your part too, right? And then they then they were able to keep take collective action to uh, um, support central reforms, for example, um, fiscal reforms or military reforms to strengthen the central government, right? So the Star Network is great for state capacity, but it's really bad news for the ruler because you know, once the EDs are connected in this very close-knit way, they were also able to um, organize a rebellion, for example, right, uh, the coup against the ruler. When they wanted to and then um so the the trade off of the of the star network is you know it's, it's it's great for state capacity but really bad for the ruler and the second ideal type of elite social structure is what i called a bow tie network and then imagine the bow tie right you have the the two the, the two triangles um, basically and then it means that the central elites are not connected with each other right they are not connected by social ties, and you know, their daughters and sons are not married with each other. And then at the same time, when they choose which local families to marry into, they will only focus on families in one region, right? You know, the two triangles is, you know, for example, you know, in one case, the s- central elite will only marry the people from the West, and then in the other case, they will only marry the people from the East, right? And then uh, in the tie network, it means that um, the central elites cannot coordinate because they don't trust each other. Right, they are not um, embedded in the, social, the same social network. They don't share the information. So therefore, they would have a hard time organizing any cause against the ruler. Right. So the bowtie network is actually great news for the ruler, but it's really bad news for the state because the elites they are all locally embedded. Their family interests are locally focused. Right. So they care about for example the west or they care about the east they don't care about the whole country and then their best scenario is to say i want to keep my resources at the local level i want to strengthen my local family interest right i want to keep all the money at the local level in my own family and then uh i don't want to pay taxes to the central state because the central state might use my money to support the other family right in the east i don't want to do that right so they so In the bowtie network is great news for the ruler because they cannot coordinate, but it's bad news for state capacity because they are all locally concentrated. At the same time, the central elites are so incoherent that they cannot take any kind of actions against the ruler. And then, so so I use these two graphs. It's it's a very simple story. So I use these two graphs uh, to characterize how Chinese politics changed. From the Tang Dynasty, for example, to the Song Dynasty, because there was a period when you know the the Tang Dynasty has argued that you know from the seventh century to the ninth century was characterized as a star network. You have the aristocratic families who were married with each other, um, also concentrated in the capital areas. So it looks like a, a star network. So we should expect to see you know very short ruler duration, right? In the a lot of assassinations, but at the same time, uh, the Tang elites were able to make policies to strengthen the Tang government. And then the mass rebellion in the ninth century destroyed the star network, then then paved the way for the transition to a bowtie network. And then the bowtie network can characterize the uh, um, Chinese dynasties from the tenth century to the early twentieth century, right? And then, but but the problem of a bowtie network is. Also you have longer ruler durations, but then the state capacity gradually declines.
1: Nowhere. Um I wanna know in this story. So this is a story about elites, and I'm curious about what's the role of the people here, right? So we're talking about the most populous um nation or entity in, in over history still. And you already mentioned like one specific way in which they seem to have been important with the specific rebellion that basically eliminated every person of the aristocracy. But was, like what uh, is the underlying role of all that people that were not of the elite, right? I guess some of them were peasant traders. Um, how frequent were these popular revolts, I have the impression based on my very limited knowledge of Chinese history that they were rather frequent. How was the interaction of these people with this elite? Tell me a bit about that. How do you like think about that in your story?
0: Yeah, the masses played a very important role like peasants or artisans, workers so on and so forth. And then uh, in my book, I specifically talk about the role of mass rebellions in Chinese history. And then I argue that um, you know they played a very important role in uh, changing the equilibrium, right? You know you have the you know the star network which represented one type of equilibrium. Right? You have this you know um, state strengthening, but also uh, shorter duration of the rulers. And then uh, to change the uh, the equilibrium, you need the masses. And then the but the masses uh, they cannot organize themselves. You still need the um, the elites to organize the masses. You know in all the instances that I talk about, for example, the, the Huang Chao rebellion in the ninth century, the Taiping rebellion um, in the 19th century, which played a very important role in changing the dynamic of those um, elite networks. Um, uh, the story cannot be told without talking about the, the role played by the elites. You know, the, the the masses were the participants, but then what really changed the politics were through the elites, right? You know, the, um, the for example, the the... Huang Chao rebellion in the ninth century that I mentioned uh, destroyed the old network, but then um, for a new network to emerge, you need the ruler to come up with a set of new institutions. For example, the civil service examination system, but also you need a new type of elites. You know the so-called gentry families. You know the the local landowners. They have to you know send their sons to compete in the exams, and then. Uh, their sons and and grandsons, they become the new bureaucrats, right? So the masses, uh, they, because of the inequality in education opportunities, they were not able to take advantage of the civil service examination system. It's actually those local landlords, right, who were able to uh, uh, um, fill the power vacuum left by the old nobility, right? And then in the 19th century, for example, the key story there was the Taiping Rebellion. There was, uh, you know, probably the largest civil war in human history. You know, it was this um, um, rebellion led by Hong Xiuquan in mid-19th century. And then the participants were mostly, you know, peasants, workers, so on and so forth. But I think the key key, uh, uh, um, um, process in The Taiping Rebellion was uh, because of the rebellion, because of the weak state capacity of the Qing Dynasty, the local landowning elites were able to take advantage of the opportunity to form their own private security. That is, you know, private militia, for example, were formed during the Taiping Rebellion, and then, um, and then that's really the key to the fall of the Qing Dynasty. That is because the Qing state lost the monopoly over violence, right? And then the 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 Local landowning elites were able to take advantage of the Taiping Rebellion to have their private um, army, and those private armies became more independent in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and then uh, contributed to the fall of the Qing Dynasty. So I think you know the masses uh, played a very important role, but I think um, when we look at the whole causal chain, I guess is you know. Uh, a lot of time it started with the masses, you know, a rebellion, but then the elites had to respond. And then their responses or their reactions were really, really important in determining whether the dynasty will fall or survive, right?
1: Let me, I mean, we're running out of time, but um, I don't want to leave without asking you a bit about the present because although this uh, history book, you do attempt to connect a bit some of your story with more contemporaneous events in, in the book itself at the end. Right. Um, so, I mean, I don't want you to get into details that you don't think are appropriate, but how do you think that, or what do you think that we can learn from your story to understand modern Chinese politics, which this is, a, this was a very eventful, um, Weekend and and well, I don't want to say much. You're the expert. Uh, how do you think that, um, based on your book and your research, we can understand better what it's happening in China in the last couple of years or so?
0: That's a terrific question, Javier. I, I think um, what the takeaway uh, from my book. Is that based on 2000 years of Chinese history, there seemed to be a tension between the fate of the individual ruler and then the fate of their dynasties, right? Or the country they're governing, right? Um, you know, from Chinese history, we know, you know, I show that um, when the rulers uh, want to stay in power for a very, very long time, their strategy is to weaken the elites, right? They don't want the elites to be too strong because when the elites are too strong, uh, they become threatening, right? And then the um, the strategies used by the Chinese emperors, for example, you know, starting in the Song Dynasty, in the Ming Dynasty, in the Qing Dynasty, uh, was that they use various tactics to break the networks among the elites uh, to make them unconnected. At the same time, they also use various institutions to weaken the elites, right? They don't want the elites to be connected. They don't want the elites to take uh, take collective action. And then um, that will serve the, the personal interests of the rulers, but then uh, at the expense of the capacity of the state. That is, once the elites are weakened, uh, they no longer can do something to make policies or to um, take some action to strengthen the government. Uh, and then uh, that's how imperial China fell, right? So we can draw a lesson from Imperial China, is that um, when you have rulers who refuse to leave, the elites will be weakened and then the country will fall, right? And then um, uh, there's a lot of differences between Imperial China and Contemporary China, right? You know, we are talking about you know a, a modern polity with a modern political party, the Communist Party, right, in power today, and then they have various institutions, for example, the party institution, you know, the legislature, you know, some form of elections to regulate elite behavior. Um, therefore, you know, we cannot really draw this direct parallel from imperial China to today's China. But I think there's some lessons we can still learn. That is, um, we probably will see some similar strategies by the current ruler of China, right? Um, Xi Jinping, as we just saw in the past week during the the party's 20th Party Congress, that um, if he wants to strengthen his own power, uh, a very important thing he needs to do is to weaken the elites. Right, he, he cannot um, uh, rely on a well-connected elites. He have to break the networks among the elites. For example, a lot of the um, the the corruption investigations that he has carried out in the last ten years, uh, with the goal of you know breaking the factional ties. Right, you know he doesn't want to see. Uh, other politicians or other bureaucrats in China so well connected because uh, that's threatening to his rule, right? You know, using the anti-corruption campaign, he has been able to weaken those connections and then break those networks in different localities in China. But also at the same time, if he wants to stay in power for a very long time, he needs to surround himself with people who are loyal to him, but not necessarily competent, right? And then, um, because you know, very competent people can be threatening to his rule. So therefore, you can imagine that as a consequence of surrounding the ruler with loyalty uh, rather than competence, uh, you can imagine there might be some consequences for policies, right? And then, um, and then, compared with uh, you know, when the government you know staff with very competent politicians, uh, you might imagine, for example, the policies that are coming out from the government in the next ten years will be. Um, um, uh, less well designed, you know, less well thought of, um, um, and then that has consequences for the con- uh, for the whole country for the for the economy. We are already seeing uh, the Chinese economy slow down, right, in the last uh, two or three years, partly because of the pandemic, but I think uh, also because the politics has changed in China. And then uh, with a ruler who want to concentrate all the power in himself, uh, that will have very bad consequences for the country
1: well that's fascinating I I really love the narrative arc that we took here going from ancient China to contemporary events Um, I really like in reading your book I recommend it to everyone I love the cover by the way And this was a lovely conversation. Um, I hope to talk to you soon and to all the listeners. Um, I hope that you stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you very
0: much. Thank you for having me, Javier.